0: Latter-day Saint Home Educators is pleased to bring you this audio presentation recorded live during the May 2023 Home Education Conference held in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And as you can see, and as she talked about, I actually kind of have a dual training in both religion and in family studies. Um, and so what my work has done from the very beginning is that I take doctrines of the gospel and then I apply them in the research. So if you actually look me up and read my research, you will not see uh, church doctrine necessarily thre- um, cited in that way, but you know, BYU uh, paid for my dissertation as I studied things because I would take the doctrines of the gospel, apply them into family life. So it's very similar to what a lot of you guys are doing all the time too, where I'm actually doing it at a academic level Um, But it's taking from what we believe and what we study and what we learn. And so what I'm going to do, I have um, two different sessions today. So in this one, we're going to focus on Satan's counterfeits. So what do you think of when you hear Satan's counterfeits? Just so I know where you're coming in on this at. To me, it's like so, so close to the truth that it's hard to distinguish. Okay, yeah, close to the truth. I like that. Like all the deceitful little things that like trick us or our children, That, that same similar to what she said, but like the, the trickery. The trickery, what are some of the trickeries that you've thought of or know someone who's experienced clearly, right? We've not experienced any of them ourselves. Love versus lust. Love and lust, that's a good one, yeah. Uh, the difference of choice versus consequence. Sometimes people see a consequence as a choice. Choice and consequences, yep, yep. I think just what happiness is, and I don't know how to really compare it, but there's like the fake happy and the real happy. Pleasure. Yeah, so talking about happiness, joy, pleasure, depending on who and how we're defining them, yeah, where that real one fits and where that um, isn't really bringing real joy. Um, so like think with just counterfeit, it means there is something true and good that should exist there. like doesn't mean that there should be no love, but that there is love as opposed to saying like, well since there's lust, I don't know. I've no, you're, you're right, you're, I, I like where you're going, I get where you're going with it. Like we, even with where it often is in the world, if we think of counterfeit, we often think counterfeit money, right? Money is real, money is a real thing and there's nothing wrong with, I mean we needed money to get here today and, but then people make counterfeit money. So it's not the real money that, that people try to use it in the real way, but it isn't the real thing. Sometimes along with that, it's like a misuse of something that's good. Yes. Yeah, so there is good in there and it's and the trickery in there. So when I'm taking, um, when I was making this presentation, I'm going to try to boil, I tried to boil everything down into, I came into pleasure and pain. Mm-hmm. That These are the two categories. We're going to fit all the things you talked about and more into this idea of Satan's counterfeits kind of fall into this idea of pleasure and pain. Um, And I I hope you'll enjoy my little ride as we kind of go through this how it comes in and I can't use every example I've tried to pick some and I think I'm fitting into where you guys are interested I was guessing which examples to use today, Um, and I have lots of others Um, So when we look at pleasure the happiness the joy that one right like so pleasure was where we came from Um, And there's nothing wrong actually with some pleasure. We find pleasure in doing many of these things, right? I have reading, shopping, eating, exercising, playing sports, talking, playing games, movies, social media and I used romantic intimacy for the, the whole, you know, trying to decide where we go with that one. But these are all good things. I'm sure most of you have participated in some of these at some point in your life and had a very good time doing it. It wasn't bad, it wasn't wrong, there, there, there was nothing but I'm sure that there are also times when you've participated in these things when you didn't feel so good afterwards um, and whether and, and really where we often see this happening is not in the topic. A lot of times even as parents. Um, whether we're parents as parents, parents as teachers, whichever side we're kind of playing on, or in our workplaces even, that sometimes we think the things are the problems. And that is the first counterfeit that I wanted to bring up. That none of these are in fact Satan's counterfeit. Just like money in and of itself is not a Satan counterfeit. It's how it's used and what it's done. But each one of these can also be, it's what happens with them not the event. So for example, one that we often talk about popular now is social media. That social media is bad. Um, Social media is not bad. That's not what's bad. That there's a lot of great good um, that comes out of it. During the pandemic, those who participated and who connected via social media had lower levels of loneliness had lower levels of depression than those who were not using social media during the pandemic. Missionary so- Missionary work got done during social media? That what? Missionary work got done. Missionary work gets done via social media, right? Social media is not a Satan's counterfeit for the real thing. Social media is okay. It's how and what we're using and doing with things that Satan tricks us with. That's what makes it a counterfeit is when it's the trickery behind it. That because I do social media to do missionary work, Therefore, I can be on social media for 80 hours a week and that's totally fine and that, that's not a problem, right? Like, it, there becomes this balance issue and where the trickery comes in. So then it switches over to pain. The pleasure turns to pain when we don't stop. When we don't have the balance. For example, I had a, uh, a really, really close friend and all the stories I'm gonna share, I have permission to share that Um, She was doing uh, homeschooling part-time. She had some kids, she had uh, seven kids, so some were at home, some were in the system. She let the kids choose. So she had some older kids at home, some little kids who weren't old enough yet. So she had this kind of a mix going on at home at the time. And one of her ways to uh, take a break is she liked role-playing games. And so she played World of Warcraft. And that's what she would do during her breaks. Like when the kids were out playing and doing other things, she'd play World of Warcraft. And at one point she realized she was spending 40 hours a week playing World of Warcraft without realizing it. And that the kids were doing their work. It's not that they weren't getting their homeschooling work done. The kids were kind of doing okay. But she realized that what was going from taking a break to playing a game she enjoyed, that she was spending a lot of time when she actually sat back down and looked back on like they gave you the calculated time you know she like leveled up because she'd been playing so many hours or something and she was like whoa you know and then looked around the house and things had kind of fallen apart in ways she hadn't expected you know and that's where and and again we don't want to blame the game it's okay if you have something that you take a break to do that's healthy and good but It's when we get to the pain, when we don't stop, or when we can't take breaks, when it's controlling us. So I wanted to take, because it was in the thing, we're going to take a little pause in here and talk a little bit about what addiction is. This isn't a class on addiction. So this is just a little highlight. (laughs) If you want to know more, we'll have to talk later. But I, I wanted to put in here so that we understand what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. So I have addiction and compulsive behaviors. The, the first thing that's important to note with addiction is it's not actually a word we use in the professional world. It's just a layman's term that people in the world use. Um, because it's, it's, it's very difficult to define and what it means and what it is. So when you get diagnosed with something, if you were to go to a psychologist and get diagnosed, people would get diagnosed with substance use or substance abuse. And so one of the things with the term addiction and tying it into Satan's counterfeits is gonna go both ways, and I'm gonna say this more than once today, is that he will convince us something is an addiction when it's not, and convince us that something isn't when it is. And I'm going to give um, an example of alcohol, although I, I understand that most of us that may not be the one we're struggling with. But it's one we see a lot in the movies and we've heard a lot about, so it's an easy uh, analogy. There are two main ways. We're going to talk about the different steps. Um, But one of the components in being diagnosed with alcohol abuse or alcoholism um, has to do with amounts consumed, right? That if somebody drinks a glass of wine every week, whether it's word of wisdom or not, it's not an alcoholic. Right, like that you have friends or know people who occasionally have a drink of alcohol and they're not an alcoholic. However, one of the problems is that there are two types of when we have these sorts of behaviors. One is when you start, you can't stop. So there are people who may only drink alcohol three times a year, but at those events, as soon as they start drinking, they, they are trashed. They cannot stop drinking. That is considered being an alcoholic, if you cannot stop when you start. It's also considered alcoholism if you need to have it on a regular basis, like a glass of wine every night before they go to bed. But they each think the other one's the real one. So if you have a glass of wine every night before you go to bed sort, then they say, well, I'm not an alcoholic because I can stop after one glass. And the ones who can't stop say, but I only drink three to five times a year. I don't need it every day. So it's important to recognize, now if we take that into any other thing on that list I showed you, that actually list I showed you of pleasure are all things one can become um, addicted to. (coughs) Reading is one of the big ones that, that we see particularly among women is that they they think because it's a good thing either they have to read or they can't put it down even when they need to. Um, So having that thing is something to pay attention to. So up here to be considered diagnosable okay so if you want to say something's an addiction I think this is important because I think sometimes particularly in the church we over diagnose addiction. So the first is a physical dependence. These are all four required. You can't just have two of the three. You have to have all four. Um, So it needs the substance to function. Now, it's important because none of these four are wrong in and of themselves necessarily either. So diabetes medication is a physical dependence, okay? It's true, you have to have that medication for the body to function the way it needs to function. Taking allergy medication. But that, And there are people who say, well then I shouldn't take allergy medication because my body becomes dependent on it. But the body sometimes is missing things. And, um, and I do believe that's also part of Satan's counterfeits is to try to, to switch these things and say all dependence is bad. Rather than saying that we need to be careful because for diabetes medication, that makes sense. For heroin, probably not a good idea, right? Like that's the one we don't want. Then there's psychological dependence, which is different than physical dependence. And so this is when the substances are associated with behaviors, people, things. um, They're situational triggers, more or less. So um, two examples again. Many people can't sleep without brushing their teeth at night, especially in adulthood. Like if they go camping and they forget their toothbrush, they're like laying in bed being like, I haven't brushed my teeth today. Like, I just can't fall asleep. That is a psychological dependence on brushing your teeth. And that's also okay. The brain and body is built that way so we remember to do things, right? Like, that's a good thing that our body develops psychological dependence. However, it is also the same mechanism as people who need coffee to get to wake up. Um, Because sometimes... and and, and it's totally true for people who drink uh, coffee, they can smell coffee and get the same effect as drinking it. We actually, in college, I'm a university professor, so in college, if I were to give bags of coffee out before a test, they'll improve their alertness during the exam because of the psychological dependency that we can get the effect without even giving them the caffeine. Is it only for people who drink it? um in most of the studies there's so many people who drink it i would kind of love to do it in an lds sample just for kicks but uh you know just to smell it and see if we got the same effect from smelling it outside of people where so many people in the study drink it that it would be hard to know um but uh but yeah it is it is interesting right Maybe smelling chocolate might work. It <laughs> would <laughs> be worth a try before a test to see if it brings in. Um, and, and, and in that one, um, I also like to point out the importance of um, the psychological dependence and how sometimes parents parents' psychological, like how they think it's going to work, actually transmits to the children. Um, and the example I use here is sugar. Um, that we, we've done research, quite a bit of it. It's been done multiple times with different age groups. Uh, the most common one is about kindergarten, first, second grade, where we split the groups. Each of you have your child with you in that age range, if you have or have had them in that age range. And then we give half a banana for a snack, and we give half ice cream cookies, something else, uh, sugary snack, and then we have them sit down and do um, like a puzzle task, putting together a Legos. Something where they have to think, concentrate, and work together. Which group do you think has an easier time settling down and concentrating? That's what you, would think. you would think it's the banana. So the problem is we lie. We call it deception. We actually split it that way instead. So I told you I was splitting it like this, but we took the kids in another room and gave them their treat, and really this front half got cookies and the back half got banana. But you are correct. All of the parents report that the kids who got the banana were much easier to work with. Because sugar cannot cause hyperactivity. Biologically, it is not possible. There is no difference between a piece of bread, a banana, an apple. A simple carbohydrate is a simple carbohydrate. The only reason why kids get super excited for ice cream is because it's called ice cream. (laughs) If it was Legos or stickers or going to the park or something fun, you would also have a hard time with them concentrating. It's not the sugar. Sugar doesn't do that. But people think sugar does that. And so because they think it, we train kids and say, oh, you ate sugar, you're gonna be hyperactive. And then we cause the association that doesn't actually exist because we've trained them to believe this. We see this in lots of things. Alcohol is too. Alcohol cannot cause you to be crazy and hyper and all those other things. We do the same study. We get, looks like a bar in Baltimore is where this study is, uh, the big ones are done. Of course, they're college students more than happy to participate in studies where they get to drink alcohol. Do the same thing. We tell them you're getting alcohol, you're not, but really they do and they don't. and the, the research labs make it taste just like alcohol. People swear they would be able to tell who drink, but they can't. These labs are good. It is not available on the market. <laughs> in case you wanted to know, it is not out there. But the people, the only people who believe the study are the ones who are lied to, who, had, who ran a blood alcohol level, had no clue they had alcohol in their body. They did not get up and dance on the table. They did not get angry, fight, or yell, or scream. They did not do any of those things. Really, we learn all that from our society and from the movies. And that is the other counterfeit I wanted to talk about, is that we need to learn to be aware of what is real and what is not, Um, that the things that can actually happen, from reading the books or watching the movies or being on social media. and the things that don't happen. So we have physical, psychological compulsivity. That's that idea that when you start, you can't stop or you need it every day. This is not the same as being impulsive. That's just life sometimes, which is when you're doing actions that are poorly conceived or premature, that's thinking without, acting and acting without thinking right? That's just doing, saying, talking. And then the final one, this is the one that actually makes it, if you were using the word correctly, a full-term addiction, is that functional impairments must be present at work, in social relationships, or other social situations. In, in the real professional world, somebody who drinks coffee every single day and has no impairments at home is not addicted to coffee. They may be physically and psychologically dependent on it, but they are not addicted. And it's important because how we treat and how we help people, there's difference if we actually are also seeing functional impairments as if we don't. It also, just like I taught you with sugar and alcohol, when kids are told that, that's a, that you're addicted to it or we joke about being addicted to it, it plays with our brains too and can cause problems in the future that don't happen when we don't use those terms. You know, a lot of you probably heard about using the right terms for things. That mm-hmm. this is the same thing as we don't call it addiction when it's not addiction. That we use the term dependence. You seem really dependent on your telephone. But it but it's not addiction until they cannot function in ways. Now this gets tricky because it changes based on context. Uh, For example, just using different examples, pornography um, can be diagnosed as addiction faster in an LDS home than it can in non-LDS homes. Because some homes see it as part of foreplay. That they do this together and they participate and it's not wrong in their minds. So then it doesn't cause problems in the homes. And so the level needed to cause the same problem is different, does that make sense? That this kind of depends. What about the woman playing the warden? Where would you put her? Where would I put her? Well, it depends on what happens when we became aware of it, because part of it is that this compulsivity says that they repeatedly engage despite the fact they are experiencing the adverse or troubling effects. So we need to have these effects, and then they do it anyway. So if they haven't yet had these really bad effects, and then continued, We don't know. So we don't know if the coffee is an addiction until they try to stop because of bad things happening and they can't actually stop. And they keep doing it despite the fact that they're having um, migraines and other health, there's other health, negative health effects of of, uh, coffee use, of heavy coffee use that can happen in the body. So when those things start happening and they're at the doctor's office and the doctor's like, whoa, you can't be drinking that coffee, and then they can't stop, then it moves over. With my friend that when it became aware and she realized what was going on, the fact that she was able to then say, okay, I need to take a break, I need to slow down, and she could stop, then she actually wasn't addicted. It was she had developed a dependence on it or compulsive habit of it, but she hadn't yet gone to that step. But a lot of times we jump to that step too fast and Satan wants us to believe we're addicted. He wants us to jump to that step. So one of Satan's counterfeits is to call addiction when it's not. Um, And I'm not trying to get people out of getting help. I'm trying to help people get the right help. And I will tell you the family support group and the addiction recovery program from the church doesn't require addiction. The program works for any level of dependency. We just call it addiction because most of the world wouldn't know to be like, well, if you're dependent, that works too, you know, that, <laughs> unless you've been to this class. Now, one of the things I think is super important to come to when talking about this is guilt. Because that is where, wanna, where this whole, we're going to talk about guilt and shame, that when we get to guilt, there is really good guilt. Guilt itself is not the counterfeit. So guilt is a feeling that arises when you've traveled outside the bounds of your values and ethics. That's important to recognize. Again, that means it's gonna be different for different homes and different families and different cultures when guilt comes in because it has to do with your values and ethics particularly. Another important point, not yet found anybody through all of the research that enjoys feeling guilty. (laughs) But that's just not how guilt works, right? We just don't feel happy about it. But it's okay. One of the most important things you can help your kids learn is it's okay to feel guilty. That is not a feeling we want to get rid of. We want to feel it. Because the purpose of guilt is to help us return to the way of living that's within those values and ethics that we hold. Kind of like the conscious. Um, and overriding it and, say, and shoving it down, and I'll say this and no matter how many things you attend, I only have two today, but no matter how many things I talk about, shoving it down is worse. I do research on that. Getting mad and getting angry is bad, we all know that. Shoving it down is worse for both your health and your family relationships. So we wanna learn how to feel and let that feeling be felt so that's that's what we want with healthy guilt you know i my friend spent 40 hours the end of that week realized it was 40 hours on world of warcraft i hope she felt guilty right that's a good thing to feel that she's like oh this is outside and this is what we actually try if you're in a parenting or schooling, and I do this even with my college students, when they don't turn in an assignment, and they come to me and they feel bad, and they're like, I feel so bad. I, you know, I, and they come up with some excuse, but I said, it's okay. I'm not worried about the excuse. Do you, you feel bad? I said, that's called guilt, because I'm gonna teach them even if <laughs> they didn't do their homework. That means what you did was outside of your bounds of your values. You believed you should turn that homework in in time. So that feeling you had because you didn't turn it in is the right feeling to have. So now we need to get it turned in, right? Like So that you come back inside of your values and boundaries. And so to help kids understand when they feel that feeling, that's an okay feeling to feel. Um, and we don't want to tell people, don't feel bad. That's, that's a dangerous phrase. Instead, just say thank you if you don't know what else to say, or I forgive you. Just super fast. If we say I forgive you as fast as we said I'm sorry, lots of things would help. That's what we mean. If somebody trips me and I fell down, and, um, and they said, oh, are you okay? And I said, oh, no, it's not a problem. It, it is a problem that I fell down, right? That actually isn't a good thing. So instead, I should say thank you, and I'm okay if I am, or to say, well, I'm hurt, but I do need help, but to be real about it. Because, and the reason we're so scared, is because of the guilt to shame. Shame is Satan's counterfeit. So I'm gonna go through all three. So the middle one is called irrational guilt. And if you're at all like me, you've probably felt a little bit of this too in your life. This is when we feel guilt for things that we've kind of placed in our values that shouldn't really be there. Um, They are irrationally high standards. Um, For example, a mother who feels like their two-year-old shouldn't throw a fit in the grocery store. And then your two-year-old throws a fit in the grocery store. And then the mother feels bad because their kid acted that way. That is unrealistic. It is actually developmentally appropriate for two-year-olds to throw fits in grocery stores. If your two-year-old does that, like throw a party in your head. My kid is on track doing what they're supposed to be doing. I'm serious, it's a great way. If you learn developmentally appropriate, kids cannot share until they're four, like the brain can't do it. So if before four, they're I mean we still tell them the right things, you know, we need to take turns, we need to share, but don't get mad when the kid's not doing it because they can't yet. The brain isn't, hasn't done that developmental shift yet. Um, just be like same as getting mad at a six month old for not walking yet, right? <laughs> like there's things that don't make sense. But sometimes we put them in and we laugh when it's a, you know, a one year old walking. Of course there's plenty of one year olds who don't walk. And we know kids who don't all talk at the same rate. You, you know a lot of these things, that kids don't do everything at the same rate. So it's sometimes why they're in homeschooling is to give them that space to be safe because they're not, everybody doesn't do things at the same rate. But then as, as adults, we have the same unrealistic ideas. You know, the kid who beats themselves up who is in school because they only got a 98% and they expected 100 out of themselves. And they're feeling that same guilt, but it's unhealthy. And that's not good for your body. And that is associated with negative health outcomes, anxiety, depression, stress, all sorts of things we don't want to be have going on in our lives. And we can eliminate that by checking our standards. And that is one spot Satan will come in. He will come in and say that, um, you know, that we have this standard that's healthy and that we have something we've done and we feel guilt and that's okay and then he'll give us another standard that's not that's one of his ways rather than trying to get us to do something wrong he'll try to push our standards higher you know your shorts might be long enough but he'll get you to feel guilty if they're not even longer right that we have to have capris no shorts at all you know something where he's pushing it in your head you're like well if that's good this is better but that's not better that's not, that's not the standard. That's not what the for strength of you states. We're adding things that aren't there. And, and that's where he'll go. He doesn't always go the direction of trying to get you to do things wrong. He sometimes pushes you the other one, then he'll get you to have this unhealthy guilt. And hopefully it only ever stops there, but it usually doesn't. It often gets into shame. And shame is a painful feeling of being flawed. And I have another slide that, to help us, like I did with the healthy guilt, to talk a little bit more in depth with toxic shame. So with toxic shame, it starts making you question your worth or your worthiness. You may feel worthless. You may feel like you're no good. Um, it makes acknowledging those emotions uncomfortable. Because you brought yourself or conditioned yourself, trained yourself to believe that your emotions are shameful. You shouldn't feel those things. There, there is not any standard in which an emotion is wrong. I, I hope there is never guilt for any emotion felt. Whether it be lust, whether it be um, anger, The emotion, the feeling is totally valid and in the very first step of the family support manual from the church, it says these feelings are valid. And it goes through anyone that you could possibly imagine you've ever felt. These feelings are valid. None of the feelings should we ever feel guilt for feeling them. It's our actions that we need to decide where the boundaries are, not the feelings. Feeling the feelings are important. It causes depression and anxiety. We have seen how much shame causes depression and anxiety. Um, And it frames things in this idea that I'm a bad person instead of I did a bad thing. I'm stupid instead of I didn't do well on the test. I can feel guilty because I failed a test but I am not stupid. Do you see the difference between the two? The I am stupid is shame, and sometimes, um, and it, it goes to further shame, shame feeds shame, and it feeds negative self-talk. Um, but it's also a learned behavior. It is not innate in children. We have studied children, and it is not innate in children. This is something that we learned from society, from parents, from teachers, and we pass on. Again, don't start shaming yourself if you've passed it on to your kid. (laughs) It's about recognizing it. One of the, my my son is 17 years old, and he just participated in the church's emotional Resiliency. resiliency workshop, and he says, Mom, why are we having this at church? I said, well, because a lot of us messed up and we feel bad, and the church is trying to help you guys because we as parents got messed up in the 1980s and we're trying to get better. <laughs> you know, and it's true in a sense. The church is trying to put programs together because we didn't all get parented correctly, and not because our parents didn't love us, right? We now understand more than we understood then. Even church leaders, I've been at meetings where they cringe about statements they made in the 1980s. They're like, ooh. We just didn't know any better. We said things we shouldn't have said, like our rules that wasn't healthy for people. And we're trying to dial back. And if you read the New for Strength of Youth, that is placed in the healthy context of how to parent teens. You know, like there's a lot of things that have rolled. If you read the um, family support manual for addiction, even if you don't know anybody in addiction, that family support manual, take out compulsive behaviors. The word addiction's not even in there. But take out the word compulsive behaviors and put in anything you feel like and it will help you to be able to deal with somebody who's doing something you don't want them to do, including anxiety, depression, uh, somebody struggling with same sex or something else, attraction, all those sorts of things. If you have a child, a friend, family member acting in a way that's hard for you, that manual is really good. It's yeah, just really- on, on the website? It is digitally. It is digitally. Okay. it is digitally on the website. There are hard copies available too. I did not bring it's mine, mine is- It's in the, well. it's the gospel. It's in the app. It might be under the addiction type self-help categories, um, because that's the group it's, we really, 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 really focus on. But you can read it and just switch out those words and it will, you know, you might start crying through it as you start replacing what's going in there. I did, at least, when I first got uh, access to it. And I have gone through that manual as a professional, and I, it is not in there. But I have the academic references to back up everything in that manual, um, because it is my field. I missed it, you said it was the emotional resilience? No, it's the family support manual for addiction it's like families and spouses for people in recovery the title has sounds really similar to that yeah life-help addiction it's in there I was living in Denmark and it's not been translated into Danish so I kept having to say hope you're good at English (laughs) because the church hasn't translated it yet so um, one of Satan's counterfeits is this cycle of shame and it gets really hard because the church has so many guidelines and rules that sometimes particularly for our teens i don't know how many of you have young young teens teens or young adults in your home but they cycle into this shame very quickly um, we don't always help them understand normative behaviors the two-year-old throwing a fit is normative for a two-year-old okay We shouldn't get all bent out of shape when that happens. It probably means they're tired, we didn't help them understand, they're learning how to regulate their emotions and they don't know how yet. For teens, part of developmental appropriateness is exploring. Part of developmental appropriateness is that their bodies are going to picture things that have to do with sexual pleasure. Those emotions and feelings that are coming in, a lot of them are developmentally appropriate. Hanging on for a long time is one thing. We don't want a teen to feel guilty for playing a video game, right? But to feel guilty because they didn't get their homework done. It's about where we're putting it. Um, If, and this is even true both in and out of the church. My colleagues who are not members teach the exact same things um, about the fact that, and, and it's actually easy for us to teach our kids because as far as uh, sexual type things go, and that's again not the purpose of this class, but our brains and bodies aren't ready until adulthood. So everybody who has a degree in what I have a degree and teaches all their kids the same thing about waiting till much later. They might not use the word marriage, right? Marriage might not be their cutoff point, but it's going to be much later that they're going to be talking about sexual intimacy with others because of the brain and body and we can just talk brain and body I taught my kids brain and body and um, the church can come on top of that to support it so, so that's easy for me in that way however I also know that as the hormones are coming in like my son's going to have fantasies about things and he might not even fantasize as big and as amazing as, you know, he might feel super guilty for something, and it might not even be, you know, like he kissed a girl in the thought, right? Like, he might not even really know what all that is, right? And when he comes and talks to me, the most important thing I have for shame is that we want our kids to feel safe sharing with us. When my kid comes to me and said I had a sexual fantasy, um... I said you want to tell me about it or not if he wants to give me details i I can handle it right like (laughs) i know it all goes into all that so i can handle that um but that i don't pass on shame and guilt there's nothing my kids can tell me that i want them to feel guilty about more than i want them to talk to me if that makes sense even if they were out drinking alcohol I would rather them come and tell me they were out drinking alcohol and know they won't get in trouble if they tell me, Mm -hmm. than have them hide it from me because I can tell you it's associated with hiding behaviors. For example, how many of you were told in your house when you were younger not to climb on the kitchen counters? (laughs) How many of us climbed on the kitchen counters? When our parents were around? No, isn't that less safe? (laughs) having been through the field in my house for my children they were allowed to climb on the counter so long as adult was in the room and they did they would come and get me and say I want to get a cup myself because that's usually it's about them learning independence which is developmentally appropriate at those ages but they just can't reach yet so either I need to move the cups down so they can reach them or I would come right in and I would never help them you had to be able to lift yourself up by yourself to be able to climb on a counter. and But I had, my kid had a growth disability and so he's short. And so it was important to him to feel like he could do what other 10 year olds can do. But he couldn't reach what other 10 year olds could reach. And so I would let him sit up on the counter and get the c- cup out and get back down as long as I was in the room. And I never had a problem with it. Um, because I knew that if I said no, he would just do it anyway when I wasn't there and then he might fall and hurt himself for real and there would be no one there to help him. You know, that, and, and as parenting, learning to question those things. It doesn't mean all rules are bad, and that's what I do in my, my next session is about boundaries and rules and consequences. Um, but what happens here is that kids start feeling bad for doing stuff. They start feeling worthless. They start feeling like they have no value. And then they're like, you know, maybe they made out with a girl And it felt really good and then maybe they made out a little more than they should have and they went and talked to the bishop and then they just feel so bad that they can never be good enough for anybody and so then they just go out drinking smoking and sleeping around because why why try The girls feel so guilty being kissed. The boys feel so guilty kissing. They're all feeling so much shame that they're worth nothing because they can't stop. Instead of somebody sitting down and saying, all right, it's not the kissing, that's the sin right like that's not that could be on the list of pleasures right like we've all kissed and had good times doing it or you wouldn't be homeschooling right like (laughs) you know we we've all had (laughs) these sorts of positive behaviors At at some points one of us had some good positive experiences with it and so but kids instead learn and in fact there is some work out there that demonstrates that members of the church wake up on their wedding night morning feeling guilty and shameful because we we misaligned and mistaught and and it goes both ways there are girls i was one of them right that if i was doing too much with a boy while i was at byu or other places that i then felt bad but often said well they're a return missionary i'm not even i I did serve a mission but i hadn't yet you know i was younger they should have known better why didn't they know better why didn't they stop why didn't they do those things And I was blaming them for those behaviors because I wasn't taught how to deal with all of those emotions either. And I was going into a cycle of shame, which is one of Satan's biggest counterfeits across the ages. But it's something we as parents, and particularly since you guys have a lot of exposure to your children, can help untrain too. If it started, we're not stuck in it. We can undo it we can unteach those things you know just like unschooling right we can un we can unteach the the shame cycle that we don't want passed on so that when my kids come <clears throat> and i'll tell you my son tells me he had some sexual fantasy, I said, did you ask her for consent? <laughs> he's like, what? Well, you know she'll say yes. I'm like, well, you better get in the habit of asking her anyway. <laughs> and he does now. Anytime he's, he now asks all of his sexual, whatever that means, whether it's kissing or whatever happens in his brain, for consent, that actually brings it real really fast too. Right, do you see the difference if you have to ask for consent? It turns whatever's going on in your brain into real. It's a real thing. Where does that really need to be? And then we talk about, you know, are you at home by yourself too much? You're probably craving a connection with people. And it doesn't, at this point, at that age, you know, let to have some friends over to hang out, play games, do some stuff. Because that's probably why your brain is going in this direction. You know, like that we look on real things and I don't want to teach them you're bad or wrong because you thought those things. And I'm so grateful you told me so that you can talk it out and we can go find something for you to do. Um, Because those connections will be really real someday and I don't want you not to have them. And I don't want you to feel bad for that. So um, in my, this is my closing kind of slide here, is to how to do this. Uh, If you were a President Hinckley fan, he was an optimism uh, leader and this is what he taught. And one of the reasons I end with this Um, is because there is a misconception, again, I think it's one of Satan's counterfeits, is that optimism is not the same as positive and pessimism is not the same as negative. That's a huge misconception out in the world. So this is, if you learn how to read my chart, I'll talk you through it and then you can come back to it later once you learn how to do it. So a negative event happens. Uh, A kid did not clean their room and it was agreed, everybody understood this was supposed to happen, didn't happen, and you are frustrated. That's a negative event going on in the home. To be optimistic, you can still be mad at your kid, just in case you were wondering. But the optimistic way is to say, I'm frustrated that you didn't clean your room today. Even if it hasn't happened for the past 20 days, doesn't matter. <laughs> it's today. That's optimistic. Um, Ne- negative, the, possum- the pessimistic way is to say you never get your room clean on time. You're always late coming home. Do you see that difference? It's not about, so it's the, the global and universal. And this goes into shame. You know, I'm bad at math if I'm doing self-pessimism, if I'm mad at myself. Instead of saying, I didn't study hard enough for that test today, right? Like we wanna keep it very specific and temporary. This is how we get out of shame and into guilt is to keep things very specific all about today. Doesn't matter if you've struggled with it in the past, we're focused on what how we did today, what happened right now in this minute and that means it can change. That's the optimism in there. It doesn't matter how many times it happened, because optimism allows us space for change. In positive events, we want it backwards. So that when somebody does well on some assignment that they did artwork or something else, and they do well, um, the pessimist will start over here. The pessimist will say something like, uh, if I'm speaking to myself too, um, I got lucky that I actually did good on this artwork today. instead of, I'm an artist, I can do well, right? Do you see the difference? So that's something, and I have this up, my poor children have had to rephrase things. This is what we do in our home, and I rephrase things. I will catch myself saying, you're late again, you've been late, sorry, you were late today, and that's frustrating for me. And I will tell my kids, restate that in an optimistic way with the little chart, and they now know how to do that. Mm-hmm. So that is something that I think, because I don't want to just tell you to stop a shame cycle without giving you a tool. There are other tools out there, but this one's very effective. Is this the that you use for your kids, or do you have a separate chart? This is the chart I use. And there is a teeny tiny link here, and I do believe my slides can go live, but this re-shows, um, it talks through kind of the theory behind it but this is what i use and we'll talk about because um, we'll just point and we'll say what happened are you did something positive happen did you have a positive event that happened in your life and you're being pessimistic see how you're being specific and temporary and if you have young kids you could rephrase things um my kids i started using it a lot when they were like 12 10 and 12. Um, and then I'll say, are we being big? You know, are we doing these things? And, we'll re- and we'd rephrase together. Um, to again, help their brain switch because I was trained in a shame cycle. I was brought up in that way. And so I have had to work super hard to be able to help my children not be raised in a shame cycle. Um, and so I need this myself as a parent out in front of me and I apologize when I say something that's promoting a shame cycle to my kids and say, I'm sorry, I don't want to shame you. I don't want you to learn that. You are not a bad kid. You are not stupid or whatever, even those aren't the words I'm using, that's what I'm saying underneath it. Often we're just hurt and need a break. We're frustrated, we're stressed, we're anxious. And sometimes our kids are not getting our best selves. So thank you very much, and I hope you've appreciated the session. Latter-day Saint Home Educators is a nonprofit, all-volunteer organization dedicated to providing inspiration to homeschool families. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you are interested in listening to more recordings or would like to participate in a future conference, please visit our website at ldshe.org